Today's reading comes from Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 through 13, and it can be found on page 57 in your pew Bibles. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury, it consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The depths congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Good morning. Let me open our time together with a quick word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us here this morning. We quiet our hearts. We want to hear from you, Lord. No one needs to hear from me, but we all need to hear from you. So we pray that you would speak through your word, encourage our hearts, and draw us near to your sons. In his name that we pray, amen. Well, good morning, Calvary. If you don't know me, uh, my name is John Lambeth, and I'm one of the pastors here. And it's a pleasure to be looking at God's word with you this morning together. Um, If you were here last week, you would have heard Pastor Gerald mention that we're doing things a little bit differently during the season of Lent on Sunday. So the sermon and the communion and communion are a bit earlier in the service, which is going to give us extra time at the end to sort of celebrate the feast together. Um, And so we're in our second week of our series called Feasting in the Wilderness. Feasting in the Wilderness. So we're going to be looking during this this series at the connections between the story of Israel and the book of Exodus and the sacramental 
life of the church. And we'll particularly be looking at, as how Pastor Gerald said last week, how Israel's sacramental life prefigures and conforms to the church's sacramental life. He said that verbatim, that's a little confusing. So um, uh, let me see if I can break it down a little bit. We have the graphic that he had last week. I'll see if we can get that one up again. Um, and there it is, okay, so this is an awesome graphic. It shows on the bottom the story of Israel, if you were here last week, kind of their journey out of slavery through the waters into the, the wilderness and then eventually into the promised land. And then in the, the top of the graphic, you can kind of see what those things represent. So what, what are they pointing towards? So we see that slavery in Egypt reminds us of slavery and sin. Uh, the Passover lamb is like the blood of the cross. The parting of the Red Sea is like baptism. And so this morning, we're gonna stop on that one and focus our time together as part one of how is this like baptism? And so uh, God has given us these types to help us understand uh, the story, the fullness of the story. Um, but like I said, I'm a bit less of a scholar than Pastor Gerald, so it kind of made me ask the question, why? Why did God do it this way? Why did he sort of make it a little more complicated? Why did he just tell us in plain English what baptism means? Why do we have to look back? And I think there's two answers to that. The first one is that God does just tell us simply and in plain English in the New Testament uh, that, all these, that all these stories are trying to teach us. He just tells us the doctrine, but then he gives us the Old Testament to, to see it more deeply. So our job as readers of the Bible is not to try to make up symbolic, wild ways of reading the Old Testament, but instead we're invited back to the Old Testament by the writers of the New Testament who tell us to dig a little bit deeper, to look a little bit closer. I love how St. Augustine put it when he said, the new is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. It's a nice little couplet. The new is in the old, but it's concealed. So in the Old Testament, the new, the, the doctrines of the New Testament are, are there, but they're, they're sort of hidden on your first reading. And then the old is in the new revealed, so you're invited back. You read the New Testament, and you're invited back to see the stories of the people of God as telling the story of, of us as his people now. So that's the first reason. It's not, we're not at a loss as to how to approach these stories because the, the writers of the New Testament ask us and tell us to do this. But I think the second reason, probably the more profound reason, is because we as humans are just story people. We are story people. We love stories, we remember stories, and we need stories to understand things. And so God gives us these stories to his people as a gift to help us fully see his work and the richness of what he is doing. I learned the, the idea that we're story people just from work, years of working with students, that you, know, you can say lots of stuff to students, but the only thing they're gonna remember is the illustration. So you, know, you come to a, a youth group night and you talk and you talk and you tell one illustration, and then like 30 seconds later they forgot everything you said and they'll remember the illustration for years. I've had students come up to me years later, literally years later, and, and say illustrations that I had totally forgotten that, that stuck with them, that helped them understand the gospel. And so God knows our frame. He knows how he made us. And he's given us these stories to help us internalize and to fully see the salvation he's given us in Christ. 
who is himself the great story or the great incarnation of God so that we can understand in Christ who God really is. So I think that's why uh, it's perhaps just a little complicated sometimes when you're asked to read the Old Testament sometimes in these typological ways. But God has given this to us as a gift. It's not an essential. We can read the New Testament and understand baptism. But he's given us these stories as a gift. So this morning, we're going to turn back towards the story of the Red Sea crossing. And as we do that, I want to begin where we began last week by looking at the passage where Paul invites us to do just that. This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. So Paul is saying that before the people of God could feast in the wilderness, like he told Moses to tell to Pharaoh, let my people go that they may feast in the wilderness, before they could do that, which prefigured communion, they had to pass through the waters, which is the picture of baptism. So for us, we can know that baptism is set up as a way of getting ready for the feast. Baptism comes first, and then communion. So with all that in place, let's turn our attention back to the book of Exodus and the Red Sea crossing in chapters 14 and 15, if you want to join me there. Exodus will be in chapters 14 and 15. So the first thing to point out as we approach this great moment of the Red Sea and the parting of the Red Sea and the defeat of Pharaoh is that this is the defining moment for the people of God in the Old Testament. This is the biggest event in the Old Testament history of Israel. The Red Sea victory is referenced over 100 times in the rest of the Old Testament. It gives us our first song, which was just read for us this morning in Exodus 15, the song of Moses and Miriam. So it's really our first psalm of the Bible. And it would have shaped the understanding of the people of God in the Old Testament about anything to do with salvation. So if you were to ask an Israelite, what does it mean to be saved? What is salvation? They would have answered, when God brought our people through the waters of the Red Sea. This was definitive for them. But what is interesting, what you heard from the reading in Exodus 15, is that the Red Sea crossing is primarily framed up as a story of a great battle. It's a great battle between God and the enemies of his people. So I don't know if we often think about the Red Sea crossing as primarily a conflict or a battle, but Moses will sing in Exodus 15 of how God's right hand shatters the enemy or how God overthrows his adversaries and consumes them in his fury like stubble. Meanwhile, Israel is only told to fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. And so Israel does nothing. They wait, and God wins this huge conflict, this huge battle. So that kind of leads us to ask the question, well, how is baptism like a battle? And how are we like the Israelites? 
And so I want us to look at three big intersections or points of connection for us this morning. And then we'll end uh, looking at how all of this leads us back to Jesus. So three points of connection. The first point of connection between baptism and our story and this story of the Red Sea crossing is that just like Israel before our, their salvation, we as lost people were in between two great enemies, sin and death, enslaved to sin and terrified of death. So that's the first point of connection. We're in between these two enemies. So for Israel, they're trapped between Pharaoh and the armies of, of Egypt behind them, and then the Red Sea in front of them. If they turn back to Pharaoh, who we'll learn later is a type or a picture of Satan, it would mean returning to slavery in Egypt. But if they go forward, pressing ahead means entering into the sea, which throughout Scripture represents chaos and death. It would have meant Israel's literal destruction to go forward. So the people of God have no way out. They're pincered in by these two enemies, sin behind and death in front. And they're trapped by either slavery on one side or destruction on the other side. And sometimes when there's no clear path forward, there's no way forward, sometimes slavery can look like the best choice. And so this is what was true for Israel. You can read it in, in Exodus 14 where they say, it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than die in the wilderness. So they said, you know what? Slavery and sin and making bricks without straw is better than going into the sea and facing death or being killed by Pharaoh's armies. And so they, they look at their choices and they pick, they pick sin and slavery. What else would they do? And I think this is true for us as well. And we see this all the time. So how often do we choose slavery to sin in order to avoid the feeling of emptiness and death that comes with being mortal? Ernest Becker uh, was a writer, and he had a famous book called The Denial of Death. Some of you may have heard of this book, The Denial of Death. He wrote it while he had stage four cancer, and he died while he was finishing the book. And he shows in this book that we as humans have a very hard time looking at our own death and we'll do almost anything to avoid thinking about it. And he says we're all plagued then with this repressed death anxiety is what he calls it. So we have this deeply repressed terror and fear of death which manifests as this death anxiety that we won't look at. It's like this Red Sea that we won't enter. And so one tactic among many that we use to avoid that is what Ernest Becker calls tranquilizing ourselves with the trivial. Sounds familiar. So, for example, take something as simple as looking at a screen. So it could be a TV, phone, computer. Looking at a screen late into the evening. I think we've all been there. So maybe it's been a hard day. Maybe you are feeling some of the pangs and the sadness of life, some of the emptiness in your life, maybe even some of the death of what you hoped your life would be. Maybe you uh, thought things would be a little bit different at your age. Maybe you're disappointed with the reality of your finances or the stability of your life or the reality of your health. And in the sadness of those thoughts, they loom and they're like chaos and death draws near. 
and we can't look at it. And so what do we do? Like Ernest Becker says, we tranquilize ourselves. We don't know how to face the chaos and death in front of us, so we turn back towards slavery in Egypt. So what happens next sort of depends on the person. For some of us, it might mean texting a number that we know we shouldn't text. For some, it, it might be the emergence of a dark habit, a raging addiction. Or maybe it's just a mind, mind-numbing avoidance of dealing with your life and your choices, and so you choose instead to distract yourself until you pass out, until sleep takes over. And so the truth for all of us is we can relate to this idea of being stuck in between slavery and chaos. And the truth is, unless God makes a way out of that, there is no way out. There is no answer to this. Left to ourselves, death encroaches. It overwhelms and we're forced into it. And we'll turn to anything in this created world to ease the pain of that reality. And that's the Bible's definition of idolatry, which is turning to the created world instead of to God to ease the pain of the reality of life. That's idolatry. But thankfully, the story doesn't end there. God makes a way where there is no way, which leads to the second point of connection to the story between us and Israel. So just like Israel, we are faced with an impossible scenario, but God makes a way, and we are given a new identity as God brings us through the waters. We are given a new identity. This is point number two for you note-takers. As God brings us through the waters. So as Israel approaches the Red Sea, some amazing things happen. If you want to follow along, you can look at uh, Exodus 14, starting in verse 19. The first thing that happens is that the presence of the Lord moves from being in front of Israel and passes over them. The, glory, the cloud of God's glory passes over them and goes to the, defend the, the side towards the armies of Egypt. So God moves from the front to the rear to protect them from the armies of Egypt. And then the cloud of God's presence does something amazing. It divides the light. The cloud, God divides the light. So Israel is cast in light and the armies of Egypt are cast in darkness. So God stands in between and he divides the light to give Israel the ability to see and to cast Egypt into darkness. And then the spirit of the Lord moves over the waters and he divides the waters so that dry land appears. Now for some of you, you might be saying, John, that reminds me of something in the Bible. You have uh, light divided from darkness. You have the spirit of the Lord hovering. You have dry land appearing. Does that remind you of anything? Yeah, so we're brought back into Genesis 1 creation language here in Exodus 14. Because what we're seeing is a new creation as Israel passes through the waters. They enter into the waters as slaves. They are exiting as free people. They entered under the dominion of Pharaoh and they exit under the care of Yahweh. So the waters represent a total transformation of the people of God from one status to another. And commentators will also point out that passing through these waters is also meant to remind you, invoke the imagery of birth. 
passing through the waters of birth. And so Israel is experiencing a new birth. They're being born again here. And so again, this is what baptism means. We pass through the waters of new creation and the waters of baptism, and we are transferred from one kingdom into another. And this reminds me of the words of Jesus from John chapter five. Some of you might remember these, where he says, very truly, I say to you, for whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Crossed over from death to life. That's the symbolism. That's the picture of baptism in the Red Sea crossing. So baptism is this great sign of crossing from death to life, or being transferred from the kingdom of darkness, like Paul says in Colossians, into the kingdom of God's beloved son, Jesus. And so in baptism, we enter into the, dark, the waters of death. We come out the other side as new creations, free in Christ and on our way to the promised land. So in baptism, we enact our own exodus journey. So... To recap, the first point of connection was that like Egypt, we're trapped. The second point of connection is that like Israel and like, sorry, like Israel, we are trapped. And then like Israel, we're giving, given a new identity in baptism. And then the final point of connection between us and Israel is that like Israel, God uses the waters to crush Satan while preserving us. God uses the waters to crush Satan while preserving us. So as Israel leaves Egypt, just to recap, they take a strange direction. God leads them in the cloud and he's kind of going the wrong way. Um, so he pins his people up against the sea and Pharaoh hears this and he's like, oh, well, I thought they got away, but now they're stuck. Let's go get them. And so he, he gets his army together and he goes because Israel's trapped on purpose. So God is gonna set this trap for Pharaoh is the picture here. And so Pharaoh takes the bait, and he comes. And we know the story, so God then parts the sea. Israel passes through safely. And Pharaoh, as he tries to follow, gets kind of stuck. And then God uses the sea to destroy Pharaoh and to save Israel. That's the story. But I love, even in the Old Testament, how it starts taking on a little bit bigger meaning. If you, if you go to Psalm 74, you don't have to turn there, but Psalm 74 references, references this moment. Let me read it to you. It's in verse 12. The psalmist writes, Yet God my king is from old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan, and you gave him his food to the creatures of the wilderness. I love that passage. It says God crushes the heads of Leviathan when he defeated Pharaoh. It sounds awesome. What does that mean? Uh, this is my only real rabbit trail of the sermon, but I read a whole book on Leviathan this week, and I'm sort of very eager to tell you uh, what I learned, so hang with me a little bit. Um, so Leviathan in Scripture is this huge mythological monster. So he's described at length in the book of Job, you might remember, as this monster that no human can take on. He's 
terrifying creature who lives in the sea, right, which represents chaos. He breathes fire, and he can show up at any time and just destroy your life. And so Leviathan then is this picture of the chaotic, supernatural evil that is on the loose in God's good creation. God made this good world, but there's this monster in the sea, is the idea. And the book of Job ends with, Job, with God telling Job that he has a plan for dealing with Leviathan, who is the actual enemy of Job. And we see here that the Red Sea crossing is described as, as part of this victory, as God crushing the heads of Leviathan by turning the sea, which is his native habitat, against him. So if we kind of build on the picture, the typological picture so far, we have Satan, the slave master, a.k.a. Leviathan, who is represented by Pharaoh, who chases God's people into death and chaos, which is represented by the sea. But then, in a great reversal, God uses chaos and death to destroy Leviathan and to give the people of God freedom and victory. I hope you followed along. So God kills Leviathan by crushing him with his native habitat, the sea. And so the final picture for us of baptism this morning is that in baptism, Leviathan loses. He's crushed by the waters of death as we pass through them unharmed. And this is why, interestingly, going all the way back to the second century, we have records of Christians before they're baptized renouncing Satan. So they'll say as a pre-baptismal confession, they'll be asked, do you renounce Satan and all his works and sometimes all his pomp or all of his empty promises? You might remember a movie, The Godfather, that kind of plays on this idea. But throughout the history of the church, Christians have often renounced Satan as they enter into the waters of baptism. And why is that? It's because in the waters of baptism, Satan is defeated, and we're set free every time. I think that's an amazing thing. Every time we see a baptism, it's a small victory of the people of God, and it's a small crushing of Leviathan, one of the heads of Leviathan. But the true defeat of Leviathan is only going to be found in what baptism and all these things point to. And so as we turn towards the end this morning, we need to see how all this that we've been talking about takes us back to Jesus. So we've shown in the graphic that the Red Sea points forward to our baptism, but our baptism points forward to something else. So this is where it gets a little confusing. All of these things point forward to Christ in his cross and in his resurrection, which is the true archetypal and antitypal crossing from death to life. And Jesus says this himself. He says it in Mark chapter 10. James and John come up to Jesus. You might remember the story. Um, and they ask for a spot on his right and his left in the kingdom that is to come. And his reply is very interesting. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they naively answer yes. And Jesus says, you know, you're not totally wrong because you are going to drink the cup and you will be baptized in the sea of death. But what you're missing is that 
you can only do this because I'm going to do it first. So Jesus, although he was baptized in the River River Jordan, his true baptism happens at Golgotha, which is the Valley of the Skull, as as you might remember, where he crushes the skull of the serpent by turning just like the waters, the the weapon of Satan against him. So as John Owen puts it, on the cross, we see the death of death and the death of Christ. The death of death and the death of Christ. So Satan is trapped like Pharaoh inside the chaos of his own evil world and God uses that evil to bring about the greatest good. And so the victory of God happens and Jesus is raised from the dead and Satan is cast down. And so the death and resurrection of Jesus crushes Leviathan, bringing death to death, and like James and John, gives us hope to pass through the waters of death to life on the other side of this life. The resurrection hope that, that Jesus gives us allows us to look back and bear the pain of the world. We don't have to go into idolatry as we think about our death. We can look at the pain of the world It frees us from a crippling fear of death. It frees us from the enslavement of sin. It frees us from the tyranny of the devil, letting us cast him aside and through faith in Christ be joined to a new kingdom with a new name and a new story. And finally, this hope shapes our identity as the people of God who have been set free from sin, reborn, by the Holy Spirit, and who will one day pass through the waters of death unscathed because Jesus will be right there with us. This is our only hope. Let me pray for us as we head towards communion. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in the pictures of the Old Testament and the stories of your people, You teach us what it means to be those who have passed through the waters of baptism by faith and who stand victorious on the other side, like Israel, that you have set us free from sin and death. You have given us a new name, a new identity, a new kingdom, a new family. And in all that, Lord, you've cast down Satan and you've crushed Leviathan. We thank you for that victory, Lord. We ask that you prepare us now as we head towards your table. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.